A few of you, I'm sure, because at least one of you told me this, that I saw what you're teaching on tonight and I almost didn't come. So, <laughs> um, they were in good nature, of course, saying that this is a passage that perhaps has been abused in some people's history. And so hopefully tonight we just take care of it the way it's meant to be taken care of. And we move on and glorify the God who wrote this. Now, hey, this is the cool thing about Calvary Chapel is that their system of teaching the Bible verse by verse, cover to cover, is that you don't get to say, well, nobody's going to like that, so skip it. Or you don't get to say, well, we really need this one right now because all these people are just horrible at their generosity. So let's pick this one tonight. And that's not at all what's going on. We are simply going through Second Corinthians. And so here we are in this passage where Paul talks about money. So Second Corinthians 8 and 9. I'm going to start by reading you three passages. Correct me, two. I'm going to shorten it. We're going to read two passages. Um, go ahead and listen to these. Proverbs 18, verse 11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Again, a rich man's wealth, his money is a strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. In other words, as we've been looking at unmasked in Second Corinthians, because that is what Paul is doing. He's unmasking himself before his own church that he saved, who has turned their back on him in favor of more promising, more attractive, better speaking, false apostles. He calls them super apostles, mockery, Superman. Oh, you trade me in for Superman. Um, He's trying to remind them that, hey, I'm your pastor, the one that God gave you. And so he's trying to bring them back. How? He's writing basically 2 Corinthians as a resume to them. He's saying, hey, I want to, I'm reapplying for your pastor again. <laughs> and instead of boasting about why those guys are idiots, he does a little bit about that, but, um, and why he's better than them, he's actually going to do a lot more just unmasking himself and saying, here are my warts and my ugliness and my insufficiencies and my weaknesses and my shortness of stature and my not enough take it or leave it but this is what i believe that in my weakness and in my lack and in my insufficiency the strength and the fullness and the whole sufficiency of god is made manifest Amen. and that's the way i want to lead you guys so if you want to follow mighty men go ahead but i'm going to take you to the mighty god through my unmasking and that's what he's doing in Second Corinthians. Now, in Proverbs, in this passage I just read, a man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination, what we see is that money is often a form of a mask that we wear. Some of us use money as a mask, and it is money and wealth that gives us a sense of security. It gives us a sense of belonging and it gives us a sense of worth and who we are. And that it is the amount of zeros after our paycheck that makes us better than the person that has less zeros at the end of their paycheck. Um, I make five figures. You make six figures. I make eight. You know, like that is a form of a mask that some people let their wealth be who they are. We also see in the Bible that giving, the opposite end of amassing wealth, we see that sometimes giving away your money can be a mask. 
And that's in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, (laughs) as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. That, why do they sound trumpets? Why do they go to the tithe box? Say, everybody, look at me. So that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And so Jesus is there telling us, hey, there are different ways of giving, of of showing generosity and giving of your wealth or your resources. And one way to do it is the masked way. The way that says, well, this, I am this person, but when I'm going to give money, I'm going to look like a far better person. So I'm going to slip on the mask and I'm going to make sure everybody sees I've got lots to give everybody. I'm a giver. Woo. And everyone's like, he is so spiritual. Oh my gosh. I only tithe monthly. It's, he's weekly and he's also doing charities and he's supporting our missionaries. He must be giving 40%. And you're like, what? And that's a masked way of giving. I look better than I truly am. I'm trying to put on a front for you. There were two in the church, early in the church, Acts chapter 5, called Ananias and Sapphira, who played this game as well, as they sell a piece of property and come before Peter, who happened to be pastoring the church there in Jerusalem at the time, and they say, hey, Peter, clunk, clunk, like money bags, pirates would envy, right? Just right there in front of his feet. And we sold our house, and this is all the money. We're giving all of it to the church. And everybody around is like, whoa. And Peter just, he's like, he sees right through the mask. He sees, he says, um, is that really all the money? Yep. Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And right there, Ananias falls and dies. And the young men take him out to bury him. And as his wife comes in, Sapphira, the young men just coming in all dirty with their shovels, come back into the church right behind her. And Peter's like, well, those that just buried your husband are going to bury you too. Because you guys conspired to lie to God about what you've given. You mask wearers, all to look what? Good in front of the rest of the church? You wanted a nickname like Barnabas because we gave him a nickname for his generosity? You wanted one too? What is this? And so we see this mask wearing is not unusual. It's not just something that, oh, those rich people that work for Microsoft, they ought to give more of their money. Or all those politicians are all crooks. They're evading their taxes somehow. And like We point the finger often at those who need to use their wealth more wisely. But Jesus, and the Bible also are pointing at us and saying, look, it's not a matter of who's rich and who's not. Sometimes we put on a mask just to make it look like we're very generous people and we're not at all. And so the warning is given that money can often become a mask that we wear. And this is what we don't want to do. We want to have an unmasked generosity. And that's what Paul is going to go into in our passage. Now, before we hit the verses themselves, a little bit of background here to understand, okay? So, again, Paul has his 
converts in Corinth, the people he bled, sweat, lost lots of sleep, lost lots of food, and worked super hard to save for the sake of the gospel, these people whom he sees as his children, and he is their father, and he gives everything to them, they have turned their back against Paul in favor of these other people who apparently have letters of recommendation. Ooh, Somebody recommended them. In other words, like, ooh, cool. That's Paul's like, really? Is that really what you're... Because they have letters from so-and-so, James maybe, maybe Peter, who knows. Um, and we do that today with degrees and whatnot. And, you know, ooh, Princeton, cool. Um, that doesn't always guarantee that God is working through that person. And then they also betrayed Paul and went for these super apostles because these super apostles had the looks, they had the persona, they had the charismatic magnetic personality and they were like ooh they Paul's sometimes grumpy and harsh and he's he's he doesn't really care about his fashion statement but these guys oh my goodness i feel cooler hanging out just being seen with him i want to go to chick-fil-a with him just so that people can see us together that's what they're doing like ooh the trendy people are over here and then finally it was speech Okay, these guys were all about just just spinning silk from their mouth and offering pearls and just beautiful, suave speaking. And, and Paul sometimes just got in people's face and told them like it is. And we want to go for these people. So Paul is now having to corral this and say, well, yeah, I'm totally not as cool as them. Definitely not. In fact, I think I'm going to get baggier pants just to make a statement. <laughs> um. So Paul deals with them that way and says, hey, this is me. But here's one thing that I have held back. There was one more issue that made the church swing their loyalty to the super apostles against Paul. And it was money. Money was actually a huge issue between Paul and his Corinthian church. And here's why. In the Corinthian church, it was a rather wealthy church. At least, I don't mean everybody was wealthy, but there were a number of wealthy people in this church. If you remember from our intros, even back to 1 Corinthians, we said that Corinth is, for what, it, for what America is in the world today, Corinth was for the Roman Empire then. This was a city that was an upstart city. And it was built upon, really, many of the people there were former slaves who had been freed. And so it was a city where all of these bottom-of-the-barrel people came together to make a new life for themselves. And there was a chance to succeed and climb up the social ladder. And so a lot of people have now self-made worth in Corinth. And so these people, these rich people, the way the entire Roman Empire operated was under a system called patronage. And patronage is where you have patrons, the rich people, who help out the poorer people that need help, okay? For example, um, we today, if you need to buy a house and you don't have all the money, you go to the bank, you get a loan, and they help you out, right? You go to the banks for that. Well, they didn't go to banks for loans then. They went to the patrons of the society and asked, hey, can you help a brother out? And the patron would look at him with this wad of cash and say, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. He sees opportunity. Okay, I, I can help you out. Here's what I want in exchange. And so the people receiving money from the patrons were often employed by the patron to go out through society and sing the patron's praises. Make sure you represent me well. Make sure you let people know who gave you this money. And if any voting comes up in these arenas and I'm running for something, make sure you vote for me. 
So the patrons were securing really honor and popularity by giving money to people that needed help. An example of this in scripture is Luke, the, the guy who wrote the gospel of Luke. At the beginning of his gospel, he, he uh, talks about this guy named Theophilus. Now, this is just a theory, by the way, so you could take this or leave this, but I side with this theory, and that is that Theophilus was actually Luke's patron. He was sponsoring the writing of the Gospel of Luke, Luke just being a um, doctor who just worked for people, and back then doctors weren't like they are today and didn't make a lot of money. And um, Theophilus is giving him money, and so Luke does the proper thing and gives him a mention, gives him a little hoot and holler, Woo-hoo. So um, that's one theory that's out there. And so with that in mind, the patrons in Corinth were eager to support Paul. Okay, this wasn't just, oh, we're generous people. We want to help Paul out. They wanted the reciprocation that came by helping Paul. So, Paul, if we give you money, then we want you to preach this. Or we want you to stay in my house so that people come flocking over here to hear you. Or we want you to make sure you make mention of what I'm doing over here in this part of the city. See what's going on is the patrons are seeing through Paul an opportunity to elevate their own name. That is why in 1 Corinthians, it was chapter 9, you might remember, Paul went at length to explain, hey, I don't want to take a penny from you guys. Reason was not because Paul was against taking money at all. The reason for that statement was because he didn't want the patrons to somehow own him in his ministry of the gospel. Now, here's the problem. If a patron approaches you in this society and says, I want to do this for you, you're sort of kind of forced to say yes. Because by saying no, you're actually spurning the patron. You're saying, I don't respect you. I want nothing to do with you. And so whereas the patron's trying to make an offer of friendship, that's what they actually call it. Friendship was more of a business thing back then. Um, Trying to make an offer of friendship Paul, by saying no, is actually saying, uh, they're taking this as enmity. Paul doesn't like us. What's up with this? We don't like Paul. So Paul now has this problem where he wants to be free to become all things to all people, not be bound to certain social restrictions or social uh, levels in the caste system. And he wants to be able to go to all people. So he's not taking anybody's money so he can be his own person. But the patrons want to own him. He's spurning them. They feel rejected. So the powerful and rich within the Corinthian church aren't liking Paul too much. That's the problem he's having right now. And so to make matters worse, in the meantime, Paul has been going around to all the churches. You might remember this from Acts. If you don't, go ahead and get the recording from this section of Acts. It's very, um, we go much more into detail on this. But Paul's going around to the other churches and he's collecting money from them. Not for himself, but to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem who have been having a really hard time. So it's time for Corinth to have their benevolence, their generosity collected. Um, But now Paul runs into this problem where Corinth doesn't like him because he refuses patronage. And so his opponents have been whispering around the church, theory is, whispering around the church. um, So... Paul doesn't take money from us, but he's, he's having us collect funds so he can dip into the collection himself. 
that's the rumor that is possibly spreading. Paul isn't helping the Jerusalem saints. It's his sly way of getting money without our help. So they're not wanting to collect the funds anymore. These super apostles who've come in and sort of led the church away from Paul have stopped this collecting funds for the Jews in Jerusalem. And that's what prompts Paul's writing in chapters 8 and 9. He has to answer to this. And so he's now going to prompt them. Hey, you made a commitment that you're going to help these Jews. Let's finish the commitment. And here's the second reason he's going to write this. Paul is actually trying. And remember the whole letter, he's trying to make amends. He's trying to reconcile himself as God did with us. He's trying to reconcile himself with the people in Corinth, especially the patrons. So what he's doing, he's saying, listen, I didn't take your money directly because of ministerial reasons. Okay. I needed my liberty, but if you want to help the gospel, if that's really your motive in wanting to give me money to help the gospel, then do it this way. Put money in the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. That will help me more. So he's now also trying to give a bridge to the patrons and saying, if you really want to help me, here's your opportunity. Put the money in the collection. And when I come, I expect it to be there. That's how he's going to finish it. Pretty bold guy. <laughs> so now let's dive in now that we see what's going on around here. And let's see what Paul has to say to them. In many ways, he's going to, in chapter 8, evoke sort of a competition. You'll see it. There's a competition. He wants to stir them up, not by saying, give up money. That's never going to work. <laughs> but he's going to... Show them that they're actually kind of behind in the game. The rest of the church is way ahead of them. And the Corinthians, of course, wouldn't like that. They're the people that have the, the every other year Olympic Games in their city. They're very competitive people. So chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So Macedonia is a region, okay? Think like San Bernardino County. San Bernardino County has many cities. Macedonia had two cities you would know, Philippi and Thessalonica, okay? So we've already looked at the letter to the Thessalonians. So those two cities are there. That's who he's talking about. So what God did up there, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Whoa, you guys won't believe what God's doing up in Macedonia, okay? Philippi and Thessalonica, listen, they are very, very, very poor, but they are very, very, very full of joy. And all of this is overflowing to the point where they've been extremely generous. And the collection that we're gathering for the saints in Jerusalem, it was, I couldn't believe how much I heard coins hitting the coffer. It was incredible. They were filling it up. And I did not even expect this because they were going through very hard times, but their joy and poverty brought it out of them. How are you doing, Corinthians? <laughs> um, and here's something we see. As Paul's urging this, this generosity from the Corinthians, he's not making a case of, I'm, I'm blaming all you rich people for withholding your money. It's not what he's doing at all. In fact, Paul seems to have very little to say about the amount of money anybody has. All he's saying is, listen, these were even impoverished people and they were giving. Paul didn't necessarily say that it was way more money than I expected. He's simply saying the generosity was more than he expected. In other words, more people were willing to help than he thought would help. 
Nothing about a mount here, okay? Paul is like Jesus, and he sees the widow at the temple. Remember the widow who gave two mites, two little smaller than pennies? And um, Jesus said, as these other people are putting in these huge gifts of gold into the temple, these little, two little copper coins go in, and Jesus is like, whoa, everybody, did you see that? She gave more than all the rest of them. It wasn't the amount she gave, but it was the willingness and the generosity of the giving. So Paul, as you can see, the, the, the Macedonians were not exactly wealthy, but he's blown away at their willingness. Now, verse 3 for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that he had started that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. In other words, like uh, you guys, once started the collection, it stopped. Let's, let's get it going again because of what Macedonia is doing. Verse 7, but as you, in, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So here's Paul. How does he start his appeal for their generosity? He says, look at the scoreboard. <laughs> Macedonia 500, you guys won. <laughs> it's not looking good. <laughs> so let's go, guys. Um, not, of course, in actual figures, but just simply saying there is a willingness in Macedonia that puts Corinth to shame. So come on, Corinthians. Get up to speed. You boast about how great you are, and you don't need Paul. He's such a pathetic little man. We got our super apostles. How super are they, huh? They're really making you generous people, aren't they? So he's just showing them, you know, hey, reality situations you guys are behind. So verse 8. For I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So look, are you guys really who you say you are? Well, okay, step up to the plate. Let's go. Stop this mask, we're so great, best church on the planet thing. 4 verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So there Paul's blending metaphors. In one sense, Jesus gave up everything. He was with God, and then he came to earth. I've heard many times my youth pastor would say, it's like you becoming a cockroach. So do the math. It's giving up a lot so that we could become rich, so that we can receive salvation, so that we can receive all the riches of God in Jesus. It's a great deal for us. And Jesus sacrificed a lot. But on the other hand, too, Jesus coming to earth, he could have picked a much more cush situation. He could have landed in the Roman Empire, maybe one of Caesar's sons, <laughs> been pampered all his life, lived in a palace. Now, Jesus lived in Nazareth. Um, it was a very disdainful place. Very, very, very poor place. He was just a common worker. The Romans wouldn't give a second thought about wasting his life. That's how common, as common as dirt, they saw the people of Nazareth. That's where Jesus went. And John the Baptist, too. Remember when he said, what did you go see when you saw John the Baptist? Did you go see a man in nice silk? In other words, like a man of the palace? No, you saw a man of the desert, camel skin, ate locusts. Yet he is better than any man born of woman. 
So Jesus, yes, gave up a lot, even financially, to come down to us. So he made himself poor. So, Corinthians, are you going to mimic Jesus or what? (laughs) Now, however, of course, Jesus is a hard act to follow. So Paul's going to clarify now. This will maybe give all of you some comfort because you might be like, whoa, I don't know about giving up everything. (laughs) Uh, Verse 10. And in this matter, I give my judgment in this matter. So in other words, in light of what Jesus did, here's my take on it. Here's my judgment. Here's what I want to see you guys do. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well. You started the collection, let's finish it. So that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Notice that out of what you have, okay? It's not calling them going to debt or anything. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So look, what, what is available for you guys to give? Give what is available. I'm not asking for you guys to move into a smaller house or to give up that thing. Just, just what is available. It's about being um, generous of heart. And so verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. In other words, you give everything. So the, the Jerusalemites, that's not a real word, but so the Jerusalemites are living at large on your expense and you guys are scrapping around for food and begging on the road. It's not at all. He's not that dramatic here. But that as a matter of fairness, verse 14 your abundance at the present time should just supply their need. Should supply their need. That's all he's asking. Hey, they have a need. Supply it. You've got enough. Supply it. That there may be fairness. As it is written, now he's going to quote from Exodus, the Exodus narrative, um, Israel going through the wilderness. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. That's, what, that's from the passage when they collected manna, Exodus 16. As they went out to collect manna, everybody got exactly what they needed. No one hoarded some for years to come because it went bad. They had just enough and no one went hungry. Everybody had the perfect amount. That's what Paul is advocating here. Just eradicate need within the church. That's all he's asking for. He's not asking for communism where people that make X amount, Give up a nut all the way till the people down here meet them in the middle. Now we're equal. He's not calling for that. He's simply calling for those that have available resources, meet the needs of those that have not what they need. Just bring a little bit of fairness into this. That's what he's asking for. So there's that balance. You don't have to be like Jesus and give everything and die, but do learn his generosity. So then in chapter verse 16, um, so you've seen the competition, then you've seen the example of Jesus. Basically, here's the game plan. We're going to bring up our heavy hitter and then we're going to hit it out of the park and win. That was what he just did there. Now in verse 16, we see that he's going to give him a deadline. Eight seconds left on the clock, guys. Let's get going. So, but thanks be to God, verse 16, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, so Titus is coming, with him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. We don't know who that is, 
But Acts does say that um, Apollos was a very polished speaker. So it could be Apollos. So Titus, maybe Apollos is coming. And not only that, verse 19, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us for we aim at what is honorable not only in the lord's sight but also in the sight of man in other words okay so people are coming and they're going to give you guys accountability so you know i'm not the one dipping my fingers into this pot of money like some people are saying i've got people that are going to tell you it's straight up this is good and honorable we're taking this to the jerusalem saints verse 22 and with them we are sending so now a third person's coming with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters but who is now more earnest than ever because of this great confidence in you. I believe in you. That's why I'm sending you this guy. Again, we don't know who he is, but we, it's probably Timothy. So Titus, Apollos, Timothy, pretty good team. They're going to go before Paul, gather the funds. Paul's going to walk in. Let's go <laughs> and take it into Jerusalem. Um, so now this is the pressure, right? He's giving him a deadline. This is the amount of time you've left on the clock. Get it done. They're going to come. And if you don't have this ready, Ooh, it's going to be embarrassing for all of us. So verse 23, as for Titus, okay, he's faithful, so forth. Okay, now in verse, chapter 9, verse 3. Now let's just start in verse 1. So chapter 9, verse 1. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. In other words, I can't keep going on and on about it. You already know about it. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to all the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, that's, that's the region Corinth is in, that Corinth has been ready since last year. Oh, they have? So Paul's like, I've been putting the pressure on other people because of your reputation. So don't let us down here. Um, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Oh, Paul is so smart. He's playing their game. They're the mask wearers, like, we're so cool, we're the best church that God has on this earth, and we've got the best super apostles ever, and we were so cool, we even got rid of Paul, and like all this stuff. And Paul's like, well, okay, live up to your reputation, because, again, the collection's a little behind and I'm bringing people and they're going to see. So verse four, here's the consequence if you don't get this done. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. <laughs> so it's necessary that you guys get your act together. That's what verse five says. So um, this is how Paul plays his game with them. It's very clever, right? He knows how to get them going. Well, And the rest of chapter 9, verse 6, is where he's going to now give them some biblical appeals, some theological appeals. Basically, look, in light of what God promises, in light of what Scripture says, this is also why you should get caught up in this collection. Um, So, verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That, verse 6, is quoting Proverbs 22.9. Proverbs 22.9. Now, 
if you go read Proverbs 22.9, you're going to be severely disappointed at Paul's ability to copy and paste because it reads very differently. Um, that's because, <laughs> that's because, real brief here, um, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but because of Israel scattering across the world in the Roman Empire using a lot of Greek, um, the Old Testament Hebrew was translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. You might even see in footnotes of your Bible the, the letters LXX. LXX means Septuagint. So that's, in other words, the Greek version of the Old Testament. That is what Paul read from. That's what most of the New Testament writers read from. Some of them did read the Hebrew ones still, but, but the Greek Old Testament was the popular reading of choice. That was the popular translation. So he's quoting from the Septuagint, and therefore it's going to read a little bit differently. Now you can ask the question, why does the Septuagint read differently? And those are great questions that the answers to cannot be retrieved at all to this day. So we don't know. But the, the Septuagint Council, 70 people, it's, uh, anyways, um, 70 translators, they decided that that's how it should read. So that's how it read. And that's how Paul quoted it. Okay? Makes sense? Okay. So if you ever go and look for that, that's why. But nonetheless, this is what Paul is saying. Hey, if you're going to be stingy, then don't expect much from God. But if you're going to be generous, then, well, yeah, have a generous life. And really, that's really true. Not just, I don't think that God is necessarily an arbitrator like, um, okay, I tied $10 this week, so I expect $10 to mysteriously appear somewhere. Like, I don't think that's how it works. But it is true in the sense that if we live tight-fisted and closed off, you're going to live a very small, always angry, not very connected with other people life. It's going to be a very stingy life. But if you're a very generous person with your things, and you're also going to find a lot of generous people in your life, people that are, you can get connected with, you're going to have a much more open and safe and secure life, uh, safe just in the fact that you're not always looking over your shoulder and holding on to things. It's just a, it's just a general nature, nature, naturally true that that's a good way to live. So um, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So decide that in your heart. Okay, it's a personal decision here, what you're going to give. Not reluctantly, nor under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerful. So verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So God's grace will help you be generous. Uh, Verse 9, as it is written, This is Psalm 112. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. He is righteous. His righteousness endures forever. So in verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So look, um, your money is like seed. Look for empty fields and throw it there. Oh, bread comes out of it too. It's pretty cool. So verse 10, he's quoting Isaiah 55, verse 10, which if you want the full theological implication of what Paul's saying here, you've got to read Isaiah 55 in its entirety, realize that it's on the heels of a messian, of a, of a prophecy about Jesus. And it's, it, Isaiah 55 is describing the new heavens and new earth God's going to make. And Paul's quoting from that. And it's pretty cool, the things that he's implying here. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints over there in Jerusalem, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So it's not just meeting physical needs, it's bringing spiritual praises to God. God is being glorified through this. 
So by their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession to the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and all others for while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Uh, you're going to get prayed for by the people that receive your generosity. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And that's how he closes this money argument. Be generous. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Do you know that God's generous? Therefore, I think that's all Paul needed to really say, but he does have to appeal to, to less believing people too. Um, God's generous. So what should we be? That's really deep. <laughs> um, that's how it works, though. And that's what Paul wants them to see, that Jesus left a certain way of living to be with us. We can, too, do the same to meet the needs of others. Now, so what he's appealing to is the Corinthian generosity throughout this. And we need to ask ourselves then, cool, I'll be generous. Let's go home. Um, no, not yet. What does it mean to be generous? What, what does generosity look like? Well, for starters, it's an abundance. Generosity is an abundance, but it's not an abundance of money. Okay, generosity doesn't come from an abundance of money. As we've already said a few times, okay, the widow who gave two little copper coins, Jesus, that's generous. The abundance that generosity comes from is the abundance of joy a soul possesses. Do you hear that? Generosity flows from a joyful heart. That's in verse 2 of chapter 8, where Paul said about the Macedonians, how in a severe test of affliction, apparently, circumstantially, they're not doing too well. Their abundance of joy... And their extreme poverty, so nor do they have an abundance of cash, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So the only, explain, uh, the only answer here to why they're so generous, it's not their circumstances. There's definitely nothing around them making them very happy. It's not their extra cash. He said that they're very poor. It's the abundance of joy. That was the source of their generosity. Also, chapter 9, verse 7, it said there that God loves the what? The cheerful giver. That is where generosity again comes from. It comes from an overflowing abundance of joy. See, we need our joy rivers to overflow their banks and to drown others. That's what generosity looks like. It's just coming over the banks. The joyful people are the ones that are doing that. So generosity also, it's an abundance of joy. It is also the gospel. Go figure that. Some of us aren't good with our words. That's okay. But you can be generous. When you are generous for another person, you are declaring the gospel. That's what he says in 8 verse 9, how Jesus did this on our behalf. He was the model of generosity. So now when we are generous, we are mimicking the model Jesus gave to us. How Jesus, though he was rich, became for our sake poor, so that by him 
so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So you may not feel like, I, I, you know, people, I've heard people say before, I'm not a very good Christian. I don't know how we rate that. I don't know if there's like a scale that I miss in the Bible. But I do know that if we do this, if we practice generosity, we're looking pretty close to Jesus. And I think that's what a Christian's supposed to look like. So I don't know. Maybe somebody thinks that because they have a problem slipping a word out every now and then. Um, but you know what? Be generous. Okay. Work on that too, but just be generous. That's showing the gospel more than your clean mouth is. Um, and then also generosity. This is the most interesting thing in this whole section. Generosity is an act of grace over and over. Paul said this, if you will just amuse me in eight, six, eight, six. He said this at the very end. So he should complete among you this act of grace, gathering the money for the saints in Jerusalem. This is an act of grace. Verse seven, again, at the end, see that you excel in this act of grace. Also, by the way, if you're reading the new King James, you don't have that nice little phrase in there, but the word grace is bouncing around in there. So you can find it, (laughs) this act of grace. And then in the six, I'm sorry, eight verse nine, no, uh, verse 19. Um, and not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of God. So over and over, we see three times, and then there's grace is mentioned way more, but three times Paul specifically says in the ESV that they're, they're collecting their generosity for the poor in Jerusalem. This, this generosity is an act of grace. So we're used to hearing grace as being something God does for us. I'm a sinner. I can't do anything about it. Whoa, God gave me grace. Whoa, God, good act of grace. Jesus on the cross, good act of grace. That's how we always think of grace. But Paul here turns us on its head. And he says that when we give, we are now the ones demonstrating an act of grace that God did for us. This is an act of meeting needs of other people as God met our needs. So yes, the spiritual and physical are sort of blurring here, but I think that that's the biblical worldview. That sometimes we meet physical needs to get to the spiritual need. As James said, what good is it to say Jesus loves you and to leave him naked? Sometimes we need to meet the physical needs of people to get to the spiritual need. The body is what we confront before we can ever get to the soul. And so here, Paul turns this on his head and says, now we are the grace givers. And that's really cool because in verse 4, um, in the ESV is much clearer here. But So sorry, New King James. I, I praise New King James many times. You guys know that. But just tonight, it's not helping me very much. But verse 4 says, begging us earnestly for the favor of partaking in the relief of the saints. Favor, that word favor there in the Greek is charis. That is the word grace. Always translated in the New King James is gift in your translation. Gift. That's the word grace. Same exact word. Do you see what he said? They're begging Paul, can we partake in this grace? 
In other words, God was doing a work of grace in their midst in verse 1. They got so excited about God's grace to them that they turned around and said, Paul, we want to now get other people excited about God's grace through us. We want to participate in the grace. So here we are. If you're a Christian, you're a recipient of God's grace. Nate, if you're a non-Christian, you're a recipient of God's grace. That's what in theology is called prevenient grace. It means God gives us rain when we don't deserve it. That's prevenient grace. We're all recipients of God's grace. But we can become participants of God's grace when we become generous people. And that's what he's calling them to is, hey, join into the picture of the gospel and become gospel declarers. Become who God is, demonstrators. Be generous. You are now participating in grace. And so as Paul looks at the patrons and says, I didn't want your money because I didn't want you to be God over me. What Paul's been teaching the Corinthians is that he, God, God is our ultimate patron. He's the one who's giving us the things we need. And he's not looking at us and saying, now I need some reciprocation from you. Well, he is, but he's actually saying it like this. The way you can pay me back is go give to others what I just gave to you. And that's what Paul's sending them out to do. So this is what generosity looks like. An abundance of joy that models the gospel through acts of grace. That's what generosity looks like. But why is it then, if this sounds so great, why is it then that we are less generous than we should be or want to be? What hinders us? What is the great villain in this story? And it's not stinginess. It's scarcity. It's this feeling of Nothing is ever enough. Now, I have a quote in the bulletin. You guys can read it. This is part of a quote. But this is, I want to read you the full quote so you can see part of it in your bulletin. This is what Lynn Twist says. Please catch this. This is so profound. For me and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. Is anybody in this boat? <laughs> the next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. By the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get or don't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to that reverie of lack. This internal condition, I think this is what's in your bulletin, is this part. This internal condition of scarcity, this mindset of scarcity, lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, and our arguments with life. That thought that permeates us day and night, not enough, not enough, not enough, This creates a survivalist mentality because we live in a world of scarcity. This is the enemy of generosity. 
And if this is how we live, always not enough, not enough, where is there room to be generous? We go around and we're we're inundated with a culture that tells us what is enough. And we say, I'm not skinny enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not successful enough. I didn't get enough sleep. I don't have enough money. I'm not safe enough. I don't have enough friends, not enough popularity, not enough retweets, not enough, you know, things we worry about, not enough, not enough, not enough. And so we do that. And then somebody says, can I have it? I need more time. Come on. And that's how we react to the littlest requests because we live with this scarce mentality of there's not enough anything. And that's the message that's preached to us. Always, always, always not enough, not enough, not enough. So how do we deal with it? We put on our masks and we move on. But then this word just repeats over and over and over like the hero trying to slay the villain, popping in here and popping in there until it's finally climatically triumphant. It's the word grace. And grace comes in and it declares, no, no, enough with this not enough. You are enough. You are enough. You have enough. God gives you enough. It's all because of God that you can be enough. You don't have to live in a world of scarcity. Just open your eyes and see the grace of God around you. We walk around though saying, well, I want that. I'm not enough. Nah, nah, nah. What, what did you eat dinner tonight? What did you pay for that? By the way, this is, this is the grace of God. It's everywhere around you. It's, there is enough. There is enough. The problem is we have lost the art. We probably never actually had it of gratitude. We don't thank God enough. We don't thank our neighbor or our spouse or our kids enough for the little things that are there. Why? Well, because we've been taught that bigger is better. And that your mundane, everyday, Monday routine is boring, therefore insignificant. And so we tend to overlook those common things. Did they really give us fried chicken again? Right? Um, but gratitude are gratitude is the eyes that open to see God's enough all around us. That's what gratitude will do. And so what we need to do is realize, okay, there is grace in this world, conquering scarcity. Grace enables me to become generous. Chapter nine, verse eight, by the way, is where I'm getting this chapter nine, verse eight. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's on the heels of God loves a cheerful giver. How am I going to do that? God will give you grace to abound in all things at all times with all sufficiency. That's how you're going to do it. We need to open our eyes and realize grace is around and we're rejecting it because we would rather achieve who we are than receive who we are. We would rather say, I'm a self-made person than say, I'm a Jesus made person. We would rather wear the mask than take it off and say, this is who I am in Christ, a sinner that is driven by grace, grace that is making me a very grateful person. And you know what the result of this is? Grace plus gratitude equals overflowing, abounding joy. Is that not true? Who are the joyful people in the world? The joyful people in the world are not, well, the, the joyful people in the world 
are the people that have gratitude. See, we usually think that it's people with gratitude that are the joyful ones. They've got lots to be thankful for. Of course they're joyful. No, no, no. I'm sorry, I said that all wrong. I'm... We think it's the joyful people that have lots to be thankful for because they look around and like, oh, yes, everything's good. My life is great. No, no, no. It is the very people that find things to be grateful for that are becoming the joyful ones. Now, now are you with me or did I totally lose you now? <laughs> oh, man, right at the end, too. It's like, ah, ways to go home, confused. <laughs> um, this, this is it. Grace plus gratitude. That is what brings joy. So listen, your joy... Um, well, I thought Christians were always supposed to be joyful. Well, come on. Things aren't just like I wake up and God just do everything through me. I'm just going to sit here. That's not how it works. God has given us things to do and to practice so that the joy can grow. He's given us grace. He's given us things to be thankful for. It's up to us to practice that and the joy will be harvested. The joy will overflow. Some of us, our joy looks like the rivers in California. And you, because of that, you say, scarce, scarce, scarcity, no generosity. And that's how we live. But we need these rivers of joy to abound and overflow and the generosity will freely come with it. That is what Paul is asking us to do. Joy is simply receiving the grace of God, even in everyday, ordinary, boring stuff and responding with gratitude As you do that, you're going to find that generosity will unmask you. Generosity will not become a mask where it's like, look how much I'm giving. Generosity will unmask you because it will remind you of the grace of God that has made you who you are. You're not a self-made person. We might do things, and that's great. We need to do things in this world. But who you are and your soul is, is what God's grace has made it. And generosity reminds us that it's all by grace and not by Brandon. And therefore, I can take the mask off and stop pretending and I can actually be. And then I can be generous because I'm not afraid of what you'll find behind my mask if I gave too much. So can we be generous? I think that that's what Paul wants. Not because, oh, gee, God is poor. God needs your money. It's not like that at all. You are poor and God wants to pour joy into you. That's why he asks that we live in a certain way. So the worship team is going to lead us into communion. And this is such a good time for you just to look deep within, to see the generosity of our God and to say, God, help me in whatever way possible. Fill my banks with joy.